All right, how are we doing? Okay. <laughs> I was going to put that on a scale of 1 to 10, but I just think we're just going to, that that, we'll, we'll just keep going. Um, thank you for coming. Um, I know week three, um, we're starting to slog a little bit. We're starting to, to plow through. For those who don't know me, my name is Sid Druin. I am the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, um, which is a Christian campus ministry. Uh, also, I want to introduce, before I forget, uh, Rachel. Can you just raise your hand? And Ruben. They're the RUF interns, so they would love to get to know you if you do not know them. Uh, maybe grab coffee or lunch or something else. Um, we'd love that. I'd love to continue too if I don't know you too. So, anyway. Um, REF is a Christian campus ministry that exists for you, whoever you are and wherever you are. And we take that pretty seriously. We want to be the kind of place where anyone from any uh, personal background, any scene on campus can come and feel welcomed. Uh, and we hope you do feel welcomed. Um, even no matter where you are with Christianity or Jesus, whether you call yourself an explorer or a spiritual skeptic or whether you call yourself uh, convinced and uh, a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here and we hope you feel welcomed. Um, also, thanks, especially if this is your first time. So, also, sorry, I'm like tracking with this light here. Okay, focus. Um, this semester in large group, we're studying the life of Simon Peter. Um, we're looking at, aside from Jesus, like after Jesus, this is the person whose life has the most ink spilled about him in the New Testament. Okay? The most words are spent on Simon Peter, who he is and what he's up to in the whole New Testament. Okay. Simon Peter is often the spokesperson for the group of people that follow Jesus around uh, for three years, the last three years of Jesus' life, also called the disciples. Um, and also, he's the spokesperson for the early Christian church, oftentimes, which we see in the book of Acts. More than that, Peter is very close to Jesus. Um, if Jesus had a best friend, if he did, here on earth, uh, Peter would definitely have been invited to his birthday party. Uh, Peter was close to Jesus, okay, very close to Jesus. Um, Peter speaks his mind with Jesus. Uh, Jesus shows Peter sides of himself, of Jesus himself, that others don't get to see. Therefore, we get to step into Simon Peter's life, and it's a great way to get to know more about Jesus and more about his church um, in a personal and intimate kind of friendship kind of way. And so that's what we're up to. Um, but let me just really quickly do my little tagline. Simon Peter is so much more than a see-through window for Jesus and the church. Again, we're calling this series Stumbling into a Run, and here's what I mean. Because Peter has faith enough to risk going after Jesus even when it's hard to see. Because, Jesus, because Peter is self-conscious enough to break into a run when he's human enough to catch his foot on a, a root or three. And Simon Peter is convinced enough to keep running after Jesus and with Jesus. I think this is so much what we're about too, isn't it? That's so much what we're about. And so I kind of wanted to, to cast that vision and so we could see that Peter shows us it's okay to be in process. It's okay um, to struggle to figure out who exactly Jesus is and also um, to wildly succeed in one moment and full out fail in the next. And that, of course, Jesus, we get to see the way that Jesus is this loyal and forgiving, but also unnerving friend to Peter. And so we're going to look a little bit at that unnerving part. But before we jump into the rest of the series, in the second meeting of Peter and Jesus, would you pray with me? Father, um, 
every week we carry more into this room. Um, every Tuesday night we carry more and more of uh, what's going on at Davidson, um, what's going on in our classes, what's going on in our halls, what's going on in our apartments. Um, and I pray that you would help us not to shelve that, but to lay it out before you. I pray that you'd help us to be um, full-hearted, um, that you'd help us to be open to the way that you work in moments like this. Um, I pray that, Jesus, you would be lifted up. I pray, Jesus, that you would be more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, that you wouldn't let us um, go through the motions tonight, that you wouldn't let us play at this, but that you would let us be transformed by you. Help us to encounter you, even as you encounter Peter in your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I know no one is asking this question anymore, but can I talk again about my summer? I mean, everyone's done with that question, right? So two weeks ago, so yesterday, so last week. Look, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my summer. Um, I'll take your sort of like total indifference, deafening indifference, perhaps a shrugging indifference as total permission to talk about my summer. So I'm just going to talk about it. Thanks, guys. Um, a way to summarize my summer is that I had this one of these two happenings, these two thing, related things happened to me this summer. The first is kind of weird. I had this pretty involved conversation with two very different people about the exact same concert, the National at Red Rocks in Colorado. Random, okay? So in early July, I was talking with this man from Tennessee at a pool in Florida about a concert, this concert, the National concert, before it even happened. Then, fast forward a month to early August, I was talking to a woman from Ohio at a North Carolina coffee shop about the exact same concert after it happened, okay? And aside from you not being that impressed with my worlds colliding, uh, <laughs> man, it's tough today. I'm going to swim up to touch the bottom, I can tell. Um, so aside from you not being impressed with the ge geographies that were colliding in that story, uh, my takeaway was that each person was chasing the same kind of special moment. That moment when you lose track of yourself, when you get lost in echoing power chords and longing lyrics, when you get enfolded into the steep clefts of sun-stunned, towering rock faces. When you feel small, insignificant, a scarcely breathing pinprick of a person. And it feels terrifying and enlivening and magnificent all at once. The second related happening to that in my summer was that I found myself clenching my fists and stomping around in the woods a lot of the time. <laughs> okay? I was tired, I was angry, and my modest goal was to find the most remote, most tree-filled spot I could walk through. The fewer people, the better. And I would just kind of like look up and breathe in all the old, huge noises and sights and smells there. Look, I'm not like a contemplative person. I don't know if you know me well, but that's just, I'm not good at that. Okay, it's a big insecurity for being a minister. I wish I was a mystic. I really do. I wish I, you know, had some really incredible couplets or, you know, an ability to sit still. But I enjoy some very brief moments in that summer of looking up and losing sight of myself. I'm getting sucked up into the green, leafy density of a summer evening and feeling the fear 
and the joy of being insignificant. I wonder, can any of you relate to that feeling, whether it's a concert or deep in the woods? That pining for a sweet loneliness or, or a pulsing togetherness? Can we feel that? We live in a world that's haunted by those moments, that desire for those moments at the very least, by that something more. What seems so often like a simple matter of physical cause and effect, a productive efficiency or maybe addictive distraction, every so often this world, our lives can get swept up in a backdraft of higher order purpose. In the words of uh, Ben Gibbard and the band, the Postal Service, now disbanded, sorry, um, I want so badly to believe that there's truth, that love is real, and I want life in every word to the extent that it's absurd. You see, most of our everyday lives are self-sealed off from God. We live under a low-ceiling feeling, what, what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. The imminent frame. The imminent frame is this unconscious mental frame or mental ceiling that boxes out transcendence, that boxes out the supernatural, and boxes in the imminent and the natural order of nothing but the in front of us. But notice the pattern of our passage tonight. A pattern meant to apply to us, not just to Simon Peter and a few fishermen. Simon Peter is minding his own business, right? playing by the rules of the imminent frame. He's making a living. He's being sensible. He's washing his nets out after pulling yet another all-nighter. Then Jesus intrudes into the scene, and like a towering backdraft of transcendence, and Peter cannot manage to return to his upright workaday life ever again. He feels terrified and enlivened, and magnificent all at once. So Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, poses a pair of questions to us tonight. And they're on your handout. Where is Jesus looking for you? Where is Jesus looking for you? Where, perhaps, is he interrupting your daily grind? That's the first question. The second question is, how are we, how will we respond to Jesus' sudden breaking through? How are we going to respond to Jesus' sudden breaking through of that imminent frame, that low ceiling feeling? Okay? The gospel writer Luke leads us to engage in these two highly personal questions by inviting us to step into the life of Simon Peter, into his world and his life in three distinct steps, okay? First, verses 1 through 3, we see the ordinary backdrop to daily life. Second, in verses, one, verses 4 through 8, we see the extraordinary interruption of daily life. And then verses 8 through 11, we see the extraordinary response of ordinary people. Okay, your handout has all those that outline on it, so I'm not going to repeat it. So as usual, we're going to begin at the beginning, and we're going to look first at the ordinary backdrop of daily life, our lives and Simon Peter's lives, in verses 1 through 3. Okay? So if you look there with me, verse 1 begins with Jesus begins with Jesus. Since we left Jesus last week near Bethany on the eastern shore of the Jordan River, he has gone on a low-budget, very regional healing and speaking tour. Okay, that's what he's up to. His ministry started alone in the desert. 
Then it faltered with a hometown visit to Nazareth, but then it really started to heat up with all of these different healings in the area, these healings in earnest, and the crowd started to press in. Okay, the, Verse 1 describes the crowd closing in to get that healing touch or to hear what Jesus has to say for himself. In fact, verse 1 tells us that the crowds are pushing Jesus to the very edge of the lake, Lake Gennesaret, uh, what the other gospel writers call the Sea of Galilee, but Luke refuses to call a sea probably because he sailed the Mediterranean. Okay, so he can't call a lake a sea. Therefore, Jesus gets into the boat and asks Simon Peter to put out a little from the land, verse 3, so that Jesus can get some space to breathe and to utilize a natural microphone. Okay? And the natural microphone is the sound of his voice is going to carry on the water. Okay? It's going to carry in the water, and there's a series of steep cliffs, what are called inlets, near Capernaum in that shoreline, still to this day. And it's not unlike the Red Rocks venue. And so um, he's speaking, and it's completely naturally projecting, which is probably helpful for his voice. And then verse 3 also tells us that Jesus gave this sermon. But interestingly, the narrator, Luke, chooses not to quote it or even to give us the gist of what he talked about. We're just told he talked. He taught. <laughs> so even with Jesus on the scene, verses 1 through 3 seem relatively ordinary, don't they? They seem pretty ordinary. Another itinerant Jewish teacher using a friendly connection of fishermen in order to hold an open-air Bible study, a study not important enough to Luke even to record. Meanwhile, Simon Peter's going about yet another normal morning routine. Okay? If you remember our study in the book of John, chapter 1, last week, Simon's, Simon, Simon's brother, Andrew, dragged Simon Peter to meet Jesus. And Jesus looked past who Simon was and into who he was be, to become. And he named him. He called him Cephas, or Peter, or the Rock, or my favorite, Rocky. Okay, so he called him Rocky. Okay? That's what I would call him if I were in the first century. Okay, just if you guys were wondering. Um, but that moment was just that. It was a moment. And so here we have Simon Peter, now Simon, now Peter, went back to his living. He went back to his brother and his wife and his mother-in-law in this house near Capernaum. And he goes back to sleeping until it gets dark outside, then waking up to do the graveyard shift. <laughs> he's preparing the equipment that he's sunk all of his savings into. He's heaving casting nets and dragnets between the bench seats of his boat. Then he's splashing into the chilly water waist deep to drag his 16 to 20 foot boat long boat out into the lake for yet another restless night. Another night peering into the deep lake with a torch and his share of forgiving, of misgivings. And this morning, the all-nighter was totally, absolutely in vain. I'm going to put this in Davidson terms things we can all understand, okay? Peter didn't even finish his paper. He worked all night, he didn't even finish his paper. He's printing it out, pages short, one draft without even spell check. And Jesus comes to him in that moment in Belk Lab with a simple request. He wants to use Peter's useless feeling laptop, the thing that just failed him. And Peter walks with Jesus to go and get it. That's what our scene's like, okay? And it's at this point, it's really important to take a step back and to pause, okay? And to consider how exactly Peter views Jesus. In spite of that moment when Jesus renamed Simon as Peter, in spite of the fact that we know from the, the Gospel of Mark 
that just months after that, Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Peter seems to have found a way to explain away all of those strange experiences. All that haunting strangeness is completely out of his mind. He wants to return to life, to normal life, to be able to see Jesus as just another teacher, respected but not adored. Okay? And so the question becomes, how about us? How do I, how do you view Jesus even right now? How does Jesus relate to us another Tuesday night in the Union? Maybe some of us are with Peter tonight. And this is how Jesus totally feels. Just another religious teacher, another teacher in the line of Siddhartha Gautama, a yogi, Confucius, Muhammad, St. Francis of Assisi. Perhaps Jesus did do some compassion, maybe even miraculous things, and he certainly said some things worth studying, but life continues, Sid. It just does. Or maybe, to give another popular view of Jesus, God feels like a concept to squeeze into our lives along with being good and chasing happiness. And when we're forced to think about what's real, which we don't like doing, we find room for God in what science can't explain, a God of the gaps, dark matter, the fringes of quantum mechanics, human language or human love, the inexplicable. And again, life goes on, Sid. There's fishing and nets to tend to, friends and food to think about. And my guess is if Simon Peter, the Simon Peter of verses 1 through 3, if he attended Davidson in 2016, he would have been somewhere in between those two postures towards Jesus. Okay, that's where he was. And whether or not that describes precisely where you are, I'm not assuming it does for all of us. This passage tells us something. Faith in Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, is a lot like falling in love. Okay? It's in stages. It's not all at once. And in many ways, as in verses 4 through 8, what we're about to see, we have no idea, just like when you fall in love, what we're getting into. So let's look at verses 4 through 8. Jesus' extraordinary interruption of daily life. Okay, let's set the scene again. Verse 4 tells us, When Jesus had finished speaking, he, Jesus, said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. I just want you to, it's hard to capture this, but Jesus is really laying it on thick here. (laughs) He's laying it on very thick with with Simon Peter. In the original Greek language, Jesus is using a technical boating term for put out. And then he suggests this absolutely ridiculous, a ludicrous course of action. Okay? Jesus tells, he even commands Peter to go back to the part of the lake that he just finished fishing all night and try again. Okay, not only is this like totally demeaning to, to Peter's fishing skills, but it's also against good fishing practice the day and time. Okay, fish were caught in the deep at night, not during the day. Okay, they were ta- caught by torchlight, not by the morning sun. And fish were caught in the morning, right then, right where they were in the inlets, not out deep. It's like Jesus is mocking him. Okay, he's giving this rich fishing advice. And it leads Peter to sort of do this thing in verse 5, which I think is so interesting. He kind of gives Jesus a salute with an eye roll. Okay? Listen to the way he puts it. He almost sighs it, I can imagine. Master, we toiled all night, but we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. I mean, we can imagine Simon Peter muttering under his breath, 
how about you keep to the preaching and I'll keep to the fishing? Thank you very much. <laughs> right? It's ridiculous. I mean, imagine if we saw each other in passing. You and I saw each other in passing, and I told you, hey, like, and you told me you had this big test coming up that you planned to study for all week. And imagine if you saw me, and I said, you know what you really need to do? Don't study. Just don't do it. Instead, read over your notes once, take that chemistry book, put it under your pillow, and sleep on it right before you take the test. <laughs> the information will just seep into your mind. <laughs> And when you looked at me out of the corner of your eye, like, is he serious? What if I just gravely nodded and doubled down and, like, gave you this, repeated my same advice with deadly seriousness? That's what's going on in our passage. To continue the analogy, verses 6 through 7 tell us that, um, that let's just imagine that you trusted me. That's what goes on in this passage. You trusted me, not for any expertise in studying or school, and the next morning, you knew all of the answers, and you got a perfect score. The first in course history. Okay? In fact, you did so well that Dr. Carroll used your test as his answer key for that class and forevermore. <laughs> but why? Why does this moment, why does this big catch cause Simon Peter to come face to knees with Jesus? To confess his inadequacy and ask for the exact opposite of what everybody in that moment wanted. For Jesus to go away and not to draw near. Why does he do that? I'm going to put it simply, then I'm going to expand it. Let me set the scene. In that moment, out deep, with a catch so big, it ripped the nets and sunk the ships of a small business of four fishermen. Four fishing professionals. In that moment, Peter realized that Jesus wasn't just an idea that you squeeze into your life. Rather, Jesus was a person you build your whole life around. Okay, that's the simple version, okay? Jesus is not just an idea you squeeze into your life. He is a person you build your life around. Okay? Here's the more expansive version. You see, there's a part of us that intuitively knows that the way this world is supposed to work. Okay? We should all be able to read our notes once and know all the material cold. We should all be able to go out into any lake at any time and catch a mother load of fish. Peter sees fishing work the way it's supposed to work. He got a glimpse of labor without toil. How the world worked in the Garden of Eden before sin gummed up the works. Jesus disrupted. He broke through and Peter saw beyond the ordinary and the eminent laws of nature. And he glimpsed the transcendent, extraordinary, supernatural God. The God who, in the words of G.K. Chesterton, is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all the daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. And maybe that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is far younger than we are. The repetition in nature may not be mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. Let me go back to my summer. 
This summer, I realized I long for comfort. My heart naturally moves towards stabilization. I just want things to work the way I expect them to work, desperately, safe and predictable, even if it looks like a long night fishing without catching a single fish. At least then I can pray for some assistance, a little help from God, and not need a sovereign king to rework everything. So here's my question. Where has life glitched for you? Where has life glitched for you? Where has Jesus intruded? Was it the frightening possibility of complete success? A success that asked you to give up control and look uneducated? Or is it something else, something that nags at the corners, that reminds you that life isn't working? A parent's divorce or a friend's passing comment, a bad breakup or a rejection, a rejection from a fellowship or a fraternity or a school? And here's the other question. How have you responded to these backdrafts of transcendence? To Jesus poking through the glass ceiling of your life when you're angry or bored or even just sad? Does that make you want to draw near or get away from Jesus? Does it make you feel guilty, like you're the one who should be looking out for him? when he's looking out for you. Verses 8 through 11 highlight an intended response, the extraordinary response of ordinary people, ordinary people like Simon Peter, ordinary people like you and me. As we just discussed, Peter's first reaction to who Jesus really is, that Jesus is the God, not just a teacher, or not even just a God among many, Peter's response is to be completely undone. Okay? He feels like a fish caught in a net. He says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. (laughs) This isn't a speech of self-hatred. Okay? It's a tale of exposure. It is a terror of knowing that Jesus knows all the people and all the places and all the times that Peter said me first. Checkered kindnesses. Reserved loves, hatreds, fears, even self-dislike. But it's also simultaneously a vision, a vision of generosity wider than the oceans, a magnificence of just knowing, knowing just one of the people, one of the places, one of the times that Jesus has said, you first, you first. Two boats full of fish, the God of the universe preparing and performing an encore for one person. And eventually an exposed and terrible death on the cross outside Jerusalem, the only act in history that can take care of our guilt and our sin and our self-dislike. And with his cross in mind, I love that Jesus uniquely handles Simon Peter in his awkward, undignified, exposed and risky moment. Jesus gives him the command that he most often says in the Bible. If you track this, if you look at what Jesus commands most often in the Bible, it's a command that starts like we think it starts. Don't. But the rest of the words don't end like we think they end. He says, Simon, Simon Peter, don't. Do not be afraid. 
I'm with you. I'm with you. After all, it's me we're talking about. It's me. And then Jesus doubled down to this kindness, and he lifts Simon Peter's head up, and he gives him the ultimate life-changing dignity. From now on, you will be catching men and women. And the original Greek of this passage, the verb for catching, has an ongoing present tense sense to it. It's a lifelong vocation to Simon Peter. Okay, And furthermore, it's got this idea that Peter will no longer be catching dead fish, fish to make die. He will be catching people, people to make live for real. Okay, The Greek word here combines the word for life and to catch. But where does that all leave us? Right? What about you and me? Well, I don't think this text is telling you to drop your books and your laptop and leave Davidson. Okay? Just, just to kind of clarify that. Okay? The vast majority of you, that's not what it's saying. It's not telling you to physically follow Jesus around the geographic areas of Palestine and Israel, like Peter. Okay? First of all, you're not going to find him there. <laughs> he is not physically present anymore in Palestine or Israel. Okay? He is resurrected in his body at the right hand of the Father, according to the rest of the Bible. Okay? Second, Peter's call to leave his work behind is unique to Jesus' first disciples and arguably in the modern day context to people who are called to be pastors or ministers. People like me. I changed vocations to do this. I left behind an incredible gig teaching Latin and here I am. Okay? But the way that Jesus' incredible kindness leads Peter to change his mind, to change his mind about who Jesus really is, and his daily identity is totally transferable to us. Okay? That idea that we're called to respond with a changed mind and a changed identity, even at Davidson, is so important. Okay? So we're called to sometimes re-identify Jesus in the most everyday moments. Okay? That occasion, we're supposed to call out to ourselves and call out to the people around us who Jesus really is and to follow him. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, I'll give you a couple of ideas and then we'll end. Certainly there's something to paying attention to your life. To paying close attention to the world around you, the way it shimmers, the way it's haunted. Jesus is intruding into our desires and into our world all the time. And there are moments of awe and wonder, powerful, significant, but invisible connections going on all the time. These connections that we're so often quick to dismiss, oftentimes unconsciously, before they're even to the front of our minds. And so there's a call to be something of a minor poet, not a major poet, but a minor poet, okay? To ask ourselves how and where we can have the margin to point out wonder. How and where can we point out wonder to each other and to ourselves and see Jesus in the midst of that wonder? And really, this story is about how Jesus comes looking for people like us at the end of the day, though, okay? And so often we think with our relationships, even our relationship with God, it's completely up to us. This is how I feel. It's all up to me. So we try to pray well enough. We try to believe hard enough. We try to act nice enough so that Jesus will come and visit more. But Luke 5 tells us a different truth. God comes looking for us the morning after. He comes looking for us the morning after. After a long, sleepless night, when we feel roofless, wallless, worse than naked, before God and before everybody else, 
And do you know what Jesus does in that moment? He takes us fishing in the spot that we swore off. That relationship, that community, maybe even that leather-bound book with your middle name on it. Maybe. And Jesus shows up in a way where we will feel totally unworthy and totally delighted in all at one time. And when you and I protest against this, yet again, you and I protest against this, do you know what Jesus says to us? Sid. Sid drew it. Don't. Don't be afraid. After all, it's me. Would you pray with me? Father, um, there's a lot in this text. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot that's both troubling and exciting. And I pray that you'd be with us as we figure that out. As we look at our lives and we think about where you show up and you intrude and you unnerve us. And I pray that um, you'd help us to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I pray, Father, that... um, You'd use your word to do that. That you pierce us with it. Wound us to heal us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.